Welcome back. I'm Brooke Gladstone, and this is Generation Putin, a special hour on young people and political change in the former Soviet Union from the Seattle Globalist and PRX, the public radio exchange. We've heard about anti-Putin protests in Russia and openly gay bars in repressive Kazakhstan. Now we move to Kiev, Ukraine. Here, young women are practicing a new brand of feminist protest. These women aren't burning their bras. They're doing away with their bras and their shirts altogether. Jessica Partnow reports. We can't show you breasts on the radio, but we can paint this image for you. A 22-year-old Ukrainian woman wearing nothing but safety goggles, a crown of flowers, and a tiny pair of orange shorts. Oh yeah, and she has a chainsaw. She's using the chainsaw to cut down a 15-foot wooden cross. She's got the words Free Riot written across her chest in black marker. That's because she's here in solidarity with Pussy Riot, the punk band that was imprisoned after playing in a Russian Orthodox church in Moscow. Our chainsaw-er is Ina Shevchenko. She chainsawed the cross in Kiev on the day that the members of Pussy Riot were sentenced in Moscow to two years for hooliganism. I talked with Ina a couple of days before the verdict. Yeah, so here um, next to the door, there are T-shirts that we are selling for our supporters. Sometimes it is even not printed, but it is boobs made, <laughs> kind of handmade. Yeah, but we do it by, with our boobs. <laughs> Ina is a leader of the radical feminist group Femen. It's working to protect women's rights and challenge sexism wherever it's found, from political and religious institutions to Ukraine's infamous sex industry. Ukraine is kind of the perfect place for a new feminist movement to emerge. Hundreds of books and internet services help Western men find wives here. Visitors to the city usually rent apartments instead of hotels, and the apartments are all done up like sleazy sex palaces. And I would say that it was kind of reason why this movement should start in country like Ukraine, where women are slaves 100% at home, in the street, at, at work, everywhere, women, Ukrainian women are slaves. When Femen started out back in 2008, they did what a lot of activist groups do. They held demonstrations, fully clothed, they wrote letters, but no one paid any attention. You know what does get people's attention? Naked women. Ina says that when they hit on the idea of topless protests, they found a brand of feminism that speaks to a new generation. They call it sextremism. I understand that classical feminism already died, you know, it doesn't work anymore because uh, it, is, it looks like meeting of old ladies who are talking to each other only. But Femen speaks to young women all over the world. They have more than 70,000 followers on Facebook. Femin groups have sprung up in a dozen countries, including Brazil, Tunisia, Bulgaria, and the U.S. And uh, I believe that feminism should be in the street. The headquarters looks a lot like a gym. Uh, here it's a, a training room where we do our physical trainings. And um, sometimes it is like uh, 10, 15 topless girls are doing physical th uh, trainings. The trainings happen in front of a huge mirror. Activists practice body poses and even facial expressions to use during demonstrations. And we just saw that, it's okay, if you want to look at me, then look at me. I'm naked as you like. No one is allowed to act sexy during a protest. 
they're not even supposed to smile. Now I'm not trying to attract you, I'm trying to make you scared of me. I'm trying to make you scared of my decision to be naked during the protest, not in your bed next to you, how you like, but oh, I'm naked for my, for my freedom, for my independence. Ina's passionate about this, but I have to admit that at first, it was easy for me to just see the theater in what Femin is doing. I didn't really understand how brave Ina is. Being an activist, any kind of activist in this part of the world, is taking a risk. Ina says she's been arrested more than 50 times. Perhaps the scariest time was in Belarus. She says she was detained by state security, still known as the KGB. Uh, they cutted my hair, they took us uh, to the forest, and uh, uh, they did terrible things to us. She says they kept her and two fellow protesters for 24 hours, that the threats of rape and death were constant. He told us that you'll be killed, you will not come back, you should understand that you will not come back to Ukraine. Ina was released, and she made it back to Ukraine unharmed. Well, except for her hair. She says they chopped it off with a knife. But she got hair extensions put in, and soon she was back out in the streets. On August 17, 2012, the day the members of Pussy Riot were sentenced, Ina climbed to the top of a hill in the middle of Kiev and took her chainsaw to a wooden cross. But what Ina must not have realized at the time is that the cross was not really a symbol of the church. This particular cross was a memorial to people who died under Joseph Stalin. Femen has admitted that it wasn't familiar with the history of the cross, but Ina maintains that her protest was against political repression. And the power of feminist organizations like Pussy Riot and Femen lies in their ability to be theatrical and irreverent about very serious topics. When it's right, you can draw the whole world's attention to important issues. When it's not, you might find yourself marginalized all over again. One internet commenter said, This is exactly what happens when you glorify a bunch of teenage punks desecrating churches and religious symbols. Revolutionaries for a new generation? Or ungrateful punks of no consequence? Whatever history ultimately decides, right now, the world is paying attention. Let's go now to Georgia. 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 Not that Georgia. We're talking about the small former Soviet republic wedged between Turkey and Russia. Georgia is more democratic than most of its post-Soviet neighbors. One big reason is that after the Rose Revolution in 2003, the government was largely taken over by people in their 30s and 40s, people for whom the Soviet mindset is much less entrenched. And then there's that true test of democracy, free and fair elections. Georgia's happened in October 2012. The results of the elections were surprising of shocking even for two reasons. The first is that the opposition actually won. Scott Ratnitz is an associate professor at the University of Washington who specializes in post-Soviet politics. And the second most surprising thing was that the ruling party uh, magnanimously agreed to cede power, which had never happened in Georgia up to that point and still has not happened in many post-Soviet countries. Georgia, Ukraine, and Kyrgyzstan all had nonviolent revolutions in the early 2000s. But in Ukraine and Kyrgyzstan, it's back to business as usual. In Georgia, though, things really seem to be changing. 
we can now say that Georgia has made a, a peaceful transition of power and things are going in the right direction. Georgia also has a strong relationship with the United States. In 2008, when Georgia took on Russia over disputed territory, it had the help of U.S. military aid. The capital, Tbilisi, even as a street named after George W. Bush. But the true test of how successfully Georgia has opened up might be how it's dealt with its most famous native son, Soviet leader Joseph Stalin. Stalin was born in a two-room house about an hour outside of Tbilisi. His little home has been perfectly preserved under a grand stone monument as part of the Joseph Stalin Museum. There you can visit his personal train car. It has a bathtub and a hushed room devoted entirely to one of his nine, nine death masks. Sarah Studeville has the story. When you walk into the Joseph Stalin Museum in Gori, Georgia, it would be easy to miss the posters tucked away into a corner of the lobby. The posters say that this museum is a typical example of Soviet propaganda and falsification of history, that its objective has always been to legitimize the bloodiest regime in history. You gotta check this out. It's clearly like they put up these, they're like little banners and it's just basically like, uh, by the way, Stalin was a really bad guy and uh, this is Soviet propaganda. But we're assured that at an unstated future date, the museum will be transformed. It will become the history of Stalinism instead of just the man. So far, these posters are the only thing that's changed. I wanted to get the full-on Stalin museum treatment. So I got my ticket stamped, and I went for the tour. Natya is my tour guide. Okay, let's start. The building of this museum began in 1950 and finished in 1957. Natya is 25 and she's been working here for two years. She's small and blonde and wearing heavy eyeliner. She kind of looks like an underdressed Lady Gaga. Stalin's father was born in 1850 in the village of at Tbilisi, Georgian by nationality. He was shoemaker. There are pictures from every era of Stalin's life. During Stalin's revolutionary activities, he was arrested seven times, exiled to Siberia six times, and escaped five times. Escaping from Siberia? Five times? This guy is fascinating, right? But honestly, the tour's kind of boring. It's boring because it's propaganda. There's no sense of the man himself or his impact. Everything's been sanitized. Purges, mass famine, exiling millions. That's all missing. So I tried a different angle. I asked Natia about people's attitudes towards Stalin here, in his hometown. Oh, it's difficult to say <laughs> uh, because I... Um... So some of them like and some of them don't like <laughs> Stalin, like every year, I think. <laughs> some people like Stalin and some don't? Everywhere? Not in my experience. But of course Natya has been instructed to equivocate. So I push a little harder. Your opinion about whether or not these changes towards the museum or attitudes towards Stalin are... Do you have an opinion about it? Good um, so as I told you, I don't know exactly, so I don't have exactly information and I cannot answer you. Uh, these uh, people who are working in Museum of Stalin, they are really afraid to lose their jobs. This is David Jishkariani, a 26-year-old historian in Tbilisi, who we met later on that day. Stalin's museum is not uh, separate of Soviet history. We have to understand Soviet history, how it was. There's a big generation gap in the post-Soviet world. Many older people still have a strong Soviet mentality, 
I mean, people in Gori still celebrate Joseph Stalin's birthday. And then there are a lot of young people who want nothing to do with the Soviet past, so much so that sometimes they run the risk of obliterating that past in an effort to get away from it. Think topless Ina with her chainsaw back in Kiev, chopping down that wooden cross. But historian David takes a different approach than many of his peers. He believes that the only way his country can move on is to embrace it all, the good and the bad. David wants Georgia to keep the Stalin Museum exactly as it is, so people will never forget what Soviet propaganda looked like and how it worked. We have to leave everything and we have to do another museum about this museum. But embracing the bad is really tough. Life under Stalin was terrifying. David took us into a warehouse in the Ministry of the Interior where he does his research on just the year 1937. It was the worst year of Stalin's Great Purge. Inside the warehouse, endless rows of shelves hold the 20,000 records of Georgians who were arrested, imprisoned, or killed by the Soviet regime. Georgia deserves a lot of credit for opening these records up to the public. That's more than many other former Soviet republics have done. Uh, it's very interesting because, uh, according to this case, uh, husband was shot and wife was sent in gulags for 10 years. The husband was shot in 1937, he says, and the wife was sent to the gulags or labor camps for 10 years. <laughs> what are you laughing at? What do you see? Our friend's grandfather who was uh, shot in 1937, <laughs> we found. So you know this guy? Yeah, we know his grandson. Pretty creepy. And to make it even creepier, the whole time we're looking at these files, there are two guys, always just a few feet away, taking pictures of us. Apparently, they're taking pictures for the website. They want to show off their foreign visitors. But if these guys are professional photographers, then I'm a professional football player. It's clear they're here to do surveillance. Walking away from the Soviet archives, from the glass and steel building of the Ministry of the Interior, I started thinking about all the contradictions in the post-Soviet world. A Lady Gaga lookalike still trying to tow a pro-Stalin party line? A radical Ukrainian feminist getting her hair chopped off by thugs? A snarky blogger half beaten to death in the streets of Moscow? Even here in Georgia, this shiny new democracy, the prisons have a reputation for unspeakable violence, and corruption still runs much of the show. So much is changing. And so much seems, well, the same. This hour started out with Russian President Vladimir Putin, and it's going to end up there, too. It was a very long and weird dream because he was basically showering me with gifts, and he gave me several sets of suits. He told me to close my eyes, came up behind me, and put the suit on me, but it was more like a mink scarf than a suit. And I was creeped out and kind of attracted to him at the same time. Whether he lives in the subconscious or in daily political life in Russia, Vladimir Putin is powerful. The Kremlin still is the center of the former Soviet Union. 
And although we've heard a lot from protesters this hour who hate what Putin stands for, it's important to remember that most Russians love the guy. A 2012 Pew study found that 69% of Russians are confident in their leader. In the same way that Reagan raised a lot of hopes of Americans in the 80s, Putin had a similar effect on the confidence of Russians in, in their country. That's Scott Radnitz, an associate professor of politics in the former Soviet Union at the University of Washington. Here in the U.S., we watched the wall fall and the tanks in Moscow overtaken by protesters, and we were ecstatic. The Cold War was won. But the 90s in the former Soviet Union meant chaos, violence, and economic collapse, all with Boris Yeltsin, the first president of independent Russia, at the helm. When Putin was elected, he became a symbol of Russia's resurgence. Whereas Yeltsin was weak, overweight, often drunk, seen as not very much in control, Putin is athletic, resolute, and portrays an image of, of control and authority, which is what a lot of Russians sought in the early 2000s. But it's not the early 2000s anymore. The anti-Putin protest movement has challenged for the first time that image of perfect control and authority. But the politics of major Russian cities rarely represent the political culture of the country as a whole. And Radnitz says that it's that disconnect that allows Putin to delegitimize the protest movement. Putin created a media strategy that portrayed them as, as very extreme in, in, their, in their values, as tools of the West, and made insinuations about how they were actually working for, for the United States. Though we may like to believe that all youth in Russia aspire to be like Americans, it's just not true. For example, in Moscow, we met Konstantin Goloskov, a 26-year-old leader of the Nashi, which is a pro-Putin nationalist youth group. The Nashi are well-known throughout Moscow, and they've even gained some international attention. They have these big youth training summer camps. We sat down at a cafe, and Konstantin told us that the Nashi want to see Russia become more powerful in global politics. An empire cannot be destroyed completely. An empire lives on in some form. The empire he's talking about is the Soviet Union. Not necessarily the communism part, but a time when it was a true world superpower. He says to be a great country, nothing outside Russia should influence its decisions. And basically the Nazi movement has the idea that a great country is coming back. Maybe not an empire yet, but still a great country. Konstantin and the Nazi movement agree with most of the Russian population. They think Putin is the best possible leader for Russia right now. Putin is synonymous with stability and uh, also with movement forward. In Moscow, the demonstrations are shrinking. It seems, at least for now, the protesters have failed to find anything in common beyond their dislike of the president. Here's Radnitz's take on how effective these protests can be. If the protests end up making a substantial change in Russian politics, even short of deposing Putin, but if they lead to uh, a sea change in the way that Russian politicians carry out their business or put new ideas in the agenda, then we'll know that they had some impact. As of now, it's impossible to say. It's simply impossible to say. But the story doesn't end here for Russia's youthful anti-Putin protesters. 
We've mentioned the Russian punk band Pussy Riot a few times this hour. Two members of the band are serving time for a demonstration they staged at a Russian Orthodox church. Their colorful balaclava masks have become a symbol at demonstrations in Moscow and Kiev and all over the world. It will be hard to overstate the impact of Pussy Riot on young people in Moscow, especially people who are part of the protest movement. Yeah, it's like not a single interview went by where someone didn't mention them. The scene I think of is that day of the big anti-Putin protest in September. Everyone was milling around with their disconnected banners and signs. And then this guy comes up and dumps out a whole bag of brightly colored buttons with white balaclavas on them. People went crazy for him. They were scooping him up by the handful. It might have been the most enthusiastic moment of the day. Pussy Riot is also credited with inspiring activists from Dresden to Mexico City. In October 2012, Occupy London protesters chained themselves to a pulpit in St. Paul's Cathedral. They were protesting corporate bonuses, Pussy Riot style. A Pussy Riot specific protest is against the influence of the Russian Orthodox Church in politics, but they themselves have become a symbol of political expression. And their message is built for the internet. Pussy Riot is theatrical, wearing colorful balaclavas and growling out provocative lyrics. Here at home, people who don't even know how to pronounce Putin's name are wearing Pussy Riot t-shirts. And all my friends are still wearing those buttons we got at the protest. How would you describe the comment, Sarah? It's a crusty old dive bar. The bathrooms smell bad. But they have good shows. I just want to begin our set by saying that we're an apolitical band, but we believe in freedom of expressions, probably the most powerful, most highest force in the world, and uh, we're going to unleash some of ours for you tonight. Kyle Porter is the frontman for Laser Kitty, one of the bands who played a Pussy Riot benefit show at the Comet in Seattle. I hope anybody coming here tonight understands what's at stake. Kyle sees Pussy Riot as a powerful example of what a protest movement can look like. A generation in Russia and beyond has found something in common with these punk rockers from Moscow. They're holding them up as heroes, imprisoned for their uncompromising beliefs. They didn't use bombs, they didn't use guns, they used a guitar. And they tapped into a generation that's demanding change all over the world. This song's called Free Pussy Riot. Mitt Romney. The Tempers. From a crusty old dive bar in Seattle, I'm Jessica Partnow. And I'm Sarah Studeville. Free Pussy Riot. You've been listening to Generation Putin. This program was supported by KUOW Puget Sound Public Radio, WNYC, Global Voices, and the University of Washington. Martha Little edited the program. This special was made possible by the Open Society Foundations. It was produced by the Seattle Globalist, seattleglobalist.com, and is presented by PRX, the public radio exchange at prx.org. I'm Brooke Gladstone. Thanks for listening. Yeah.